maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. The Making of the Modern Middle East This event took place on the 27th of March 2014 at London's Royal Institution. The format is going to be like this. Each of the authors is going to introduce his book for about 10 minutes. Um, then we're going to talk a bit about history and take a Q&A. We've allocated a generous 20 minutes for the history of the Middle East, including um, questions and answers. Um, and then we're going on to a um, discussion about the, um, the, the present and the roots of uh, the, the current difficulties we have um, in the era described in this book. And uh, we'll have Q&A then, and I'm a ruthless chair, so if you want to give a long lecture or even a long whining diatribe, um, save it for later. We like short, sharp interventions um, to the point and preferably good-humoured. Um, we will finish on the dot at 8.30. I, um, I'm going to go to Scott first. Um, his book's actually about four characters, very interesting, different characters, but the, the, kind of the, the, the lead character is Lawrence of Arabia, although the book is Lawrence in Arabia. And there's a lot about, about Lawrence and, and also a marvellous paragraph, which I'm just going to read you to set the stage uh, for Scott's presentation. He lists all the ghastly things which he says the, the, what transpired over the past half century is f- familiar to all wars, convulsions, state-sponsored terrorism, um, interventions, uh, unbroken string of cruel and kleptocratic dictatorships, majority of people impoverished and disenfranchised. And he says that the blame for this doesn't rest solely with the terrible decisions 
made at the end of World War I. But it was then that one particularly toxic seed was planted. Ever since, Arab society has tended to define itself less by what it aspires to become than by what it is opposed to, colonialism, Zionism, Western imperialism, and so on. And um, that's just one of the many um, wonderful uh, apposues and aphorisms in the, in, in, in the book. But without more ado, I'm going to give the floor now to Scott to, to talk, talk, talk about, in, introduce your, your book and, and how it has brought us, those tumultuous years have brought us to the dreadful position we're in now. I'll go do it. Yeah. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge compressing five years of work into a 10-minute t- talk. So, I, so what I'm mainly going to talk about today is, is uh, uh, Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence, um, and, and his relationship with, uh, with uh, Faisal. Um, just very briefly, the, Lawrence's background. He was, he was from the British upper middle class. Um, one, one great detail is his last, his last name actually wasn't Lawrence. It was, uh, his, his last name should have been Chapman. His father had, uh, was a, a member of the Anglo-Irish aristocracy uh, named Thomas Chapman. He'd run off with a governess. His, his wife had not given him a divorce. So as he started his second family, and, and Lawrence being the, the third of five sons, uh, the family lived a, a fugitive existence. By the time uh, T. Lawrence was eight years old, he'd lived in, in six different places uh, around the British Isles. Um, so this family grew up in, in a very um, emotionally constricted and, and almost a fugitive existence. The, the parents were deathly afraid of, of ever, especially the father, of ever crossing paths with someone who knew him from his, his prior life. Um, so even this physical constriction to the family. Um, in light of that, it, w- it was a, a, a tremendous uh, risk that the, the, fa- the father took in moving the family to Oxford. He wanted his, his sons to have uh, an excellent education, but certainly in a place like Oxford, it was most likely a place where he would cross paths with someone who knew him from his past. The family moved to Oxford. T. E. Lawrence, who's known... In, uh, by the family as Ned, uh, went to the Oxford City High School for boys. Um, He was a good student, shy, kept to himself, had a very small group of of friends, developed a fascination with archaeology at a very young age. This was a time when there was a great deal of construction in Oxford, and whenever on these construction sites, uh, uh, Lawrence would dig around and find mostly old ancient bits of pottery, and it, it, it it, it fueled his interest in, in um, archaeology. Um, when he was admitted to Oxford University, he, um, he was studying military history, and, and um, specifically medieval battlements. Um, for his, his thesis, he decided he was going to go to uh, Syria and conduct a, a walking tour of the Crusader castles in Syria. And uh, already, Lawrence, with this with this dogged uh, determination that he had, he wasn't going to just go to some of them. He was going to go to virtually all of them. And at, so at the age of 19, he set off for Syria by himself and walked 1,200 miles um, across the Syrian interior. Um, when he came back and, and he graduated, he, he got a, a little stipend from the university to study 
uh, French medieval pottery. And he, he, had, he had been at that for about three, three days when he heard that the British Museum was sending an archaeological expedition to the Hittite ruins of Carchemish, uh, which uh, is in uh, northern Syria to, uh, today on the border between Syria and Turkey. He talked his way on as a, as a junior help, helper. He spent most of the next five years, and this is the five years immediately prior to World War I, at Carchemish. And what was clear in the time he spent there, he developed a, a, a deep and very quick affinity for Arab culture. Uh, and more than an archaeologist, he really studied the way Arab society worked. And he would, with the local workmen, he would go to their homes and, um, and develop very, very uh, sophisticated family trees of some of these workmen of, and really wanted to understand the way society worked. Uh, he had just come back to London from uh, Diggin Karkamish when World War I broke out. Turkey didn't, uh, the war, of course, started in August of 1914. Turkey didn't come into the war until uh, November uh, and, and came in on the side of the Germans. At, Lawrence was five foot three. Some people say five foot four and a half. He was too short to join the military. Um, but when Turkey came into the war because he spoke Arabic and he, and he was seen as something of, a, of, of an Arab expert, he, um, he was admitted in the military and sent as a military intelligence officer to Cairo. Uh, Cairo, uh, British Egypt being the, the, the main staging ground for the, the British war effort against the Ottomans. Um, for the next two years, Lawrence was mainly stuck behind a desk. But during that time, he, he certainly learned about the, the, the negotiations that were going on between uh, Amir Hussein, the Amir of, of uh, Hejaz in Central Arabia, and the British High Commissioner in Egypt toward um, raising a, uh, Arab revolt, a, a Arab revolt against the Ottoman Turks. The, the main... British interest in, uh, of course, was in in sponsoring the revolt, partly partly military. It gives the Ottoman Turks something else to think about, but also largely political. Um, uh, Amir Hussein was the spiritual guardian of the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina, um, and it would negate the effort by the Turks and by the Germans of of portraying the the French and the British as modern day Christian crusaders. The Arab Revolt was launched in, in the summer in June of 1916. Um, Lawrence very quickly ran into trouble. It, 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 they, they, they took a few cities in the surprise of the first few days, and, and then it, it rather fizzled. Um, and Lawrence first went to Arabia in October, five, four or five months after the, war, the revolt had started, essentially as a tag-along for a, a British officer who was going to to, to try to see what could be done with the revolt. Lawrence was only in Arabia on his first trip for 10 days. And in that 10 days, he managed to meet all four of, of Amr Hussein's uh, sons, and they were the primary battlefield commanders. Um, but most importantly, he met Faisal. Um, he was, he was the, uh, Lawrence was the first British officer to be allowed to travel into the, into the interior of Arabia, it, uh, it being Holy Land and, and closed to infidels. And in the interior, he met Faisal. And, and as he famously wrote in Seven Pillars of, of Wisdom, his war memoir, um, he saw in, he instantly saw in Faisal uh, his, quote, prophet of war. And he saw him as, as the real leader of the Arab revolt. Um, 
in sh- after 10 days, Lawrence went back to Cairo, and in very short order, he managed to get himself brought back over to Arabia, first as the temporary liaison officer to Faisal, but then very quickly as, as the permanent one. As he took up those duties, though, uh, Lawrence harbored a, a, a guilty secret. Um, he also knew that in addition to the promises that had been made to the Arabs, the British government had entered into a secret agreement with, with the French, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, um, which the, 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 um, the, in, the, in the agreement with the Arabs, they had, the, the British granted uh, sweeping independence for the Arab nation, for virtually the entire Arab nation, um, uh, virtually the entire Middle East, the entire Arab world, with a couple of small exceptions. Uh, in the Sykes-Picot Agreement, uh, now almost all the Middle East, all the good parts, were going to be divided between the French and the British with, with the future Arab nation relegated to the, to the wastelands, at the time the wastelands of, of uh, Arabia. Um, so as, as Lawrence was engaged in, in, uh, in recruiting um, and helping, helping enlist Arab tribes to join in the Arab revolt, he also carried this, this secret, and, and knowing that in all probability, um, uh, at, at the end of the war, the Arabs were going to be betrayed. Within a few months, he, I, th- he, I think he was already so conflicted with a, a kind of a dual allegiance, divided loyalty, that he took Faisal aside and told him about the existence of, of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Um, Why, why did he do that? I, I think part of it was this, this personal thing. He, he, felt, he felt caught between um, his loyalty to, to the Arab cause. He, he was certainly a very committed Arab, Arabophile at that time. But I think also he felt that, that the British government were, were on a collision course, that this, this idea of dividing the Middle East and the Arab world between imperial powers was, was going to lead to disaster. Um, as, as the war progressed, Lawrence became... Uh, Increasingly conflicted by this, by carrying this secret, and he, he refers to himself in Seven Pillars as as a fraud and a charlatan. Um, to the point where, in the closing days of the war, it, it almost seemed like he was trying to get himself killed. He, he was leading almost suicidal uh, charges against the Turks. Um, but what kept him going was he he had this idea that if he could get the Arab army to Damascus first. Syria having been promised to the French in, in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. If you could actually get the Arab, uh, Arab rebels to Damascus before the British army got there, that somehow that could, be, that could be turned into thwarting the French designs and the British would be forced to, to, to give Syria to, to, the, um, to the Arabs. Uh, the, British, the regular British army and the Arab rebel army got to Damascus essentially simultaneously right at the very beginning of October 1918. Um, it's a very famous meeting at the Victoria Hotel in Damascus with Faisal and uh, Lawrence and General Allenby, the, the British commander-in-chief in the Middle East, where Lawrence had, was in the process of setting up a provisional government that would recognize Faisal as the king. And Allenby said, basically said, sorry, it's, it's going to the French, and said to Lawrence... Uh, you knew th- you knew this, didn't you? Tell him, um, Lawrence. At that at that meeting, uh, Faisal Faisal left the room. Lawrence stayed behind and said he, he wanted to quit the, the military. And at first, Allenby said, well, "You can't quit. The war is still going." Um, and Lawrence said, "I'm I'm of no use. I want to go home." And the next day, he left 
Damascus, uh, never to return. He went back to London, and what he, he immediately started doing was trying to marshal allies uh, for, the, uh, for the upcoming uh, peace conference. Uh, this, is, this is now October. The war is not even over yet. Um, and as, as, the, as they move towards the Paris Peace Conference, which started in early 1919, he first tries to find allies within the British government. He has some, but um, increasingly the idea of, of handing over to the French um, takes sway. The Americans, Woodrow Wilson's come over to talk about um, the, the, the rights of small peoples to independence. He doesn't get anywhere with the Americans. Um, and he ends up in, in, in one of the most controversial, and, and I know Professor Alabi is probably going to talk about this, um, entering, having uh, Faisal enter, enter an agreement with Heim Weizmann, the head of the British Zionist Federation, where in return for recognizing Jewish primacy in Palestine, that this was uh, the Balfour Declaration that had come out a year before, which it was the official British policy to encourage uh, Jewish immigration, immigration to Palestine, uh, that in return for that, the Zionists would, would support the Arab claim to Syria. Um, in the end, all of that, none of it, um, none of it came to fruition. Um, Lawrence was effectively banned by the British government from the Paris Peace Conference and, and banned from, from advising Faisal. Um, and so um, Faisal was... was basically forced to accept the, the French, and, uh, French and British imposed peace. Um, I think I'll end it there, and I'll, I'll hand over to Professor Alawi. Well, th- th- thanks very much indeed, Scott. And I should have said at the beginning, I introduced Scott's book, I should have said he's a veteran American war correspondent, and his book got off to a flying start with 150,000 copies sold in the United States and was named as one of the best books of 2013 by the New York Times. But anyway, Lawrence is, if you like, the really well-known guy. Everybody, I guess, in this audience has seen the film Lawrence of Arabia. Many people will have copies of the Seven Pillars of Wisdom sitting appreciated but unread on their, um, <laughs> on their bookshelves. Um, but what I particularly liked about Professor Ali Alawi's book was it was giving the other end of the story, um, which has really, I think, not been told, certainly not with this level of detail and insight in English before. This is the story told from the Arab point of view with both command of the, um, of the English sources and the Western sources, but also with a very um, thorough use of the Arabic language sources of mem- memoirs, of which there are surprisingly many to those of us reared on this rather sort of Orientalist view that it didn't happen unless um, someone from Europe wrote it down. And Professor Lawi needs no introduction, really, but he was Minister of Defence and Minister of Finance in different Iraqi post-war governments, and he's currently research professor at the National University of Singapore, was ranked fourth on Prospect magazine's um, poll of 2000 world, 2013 World Thinkers um, for his thoughts on the history and the future of Islamic society. Ali Alawi, floor is yours, and please speak up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I'll ask if you can all hear me. Okay. Most of those who have heard about uh, Faisal 
probably heard about him or saw him in the film by uh, David Lee in Lawrence of Arabia, where he was act, he was the part was uh, played memorably, I think, by Alec Guinness. And he was he also featured in another film uh, called uh, Sirocco, which had Humphrey Bogart, but he was off off stage, so it was quite hard to discern his uh, his outlines. <laughs> And he was also uh, played by, I think, an actor called uh, Art Malik in the early 90s uh, film with Ralph Fiennes uh, called, I think, Lawrence After Arabia. But uh, that didn't really get much uh, uh, traction. So why is, he, why is he such an important and significant figure? And why, why in the end do I call him in the epilogue Faisal the Great? Because I think that is what he was. He was one of the greatest... Uh, statesmen and figures of modern Arab history. Uh, and, and in my reckoning, he's uh, probably, uh, I would call him the Arab uh, uh, Simon uh, Bolivar. Uh, he was born into the uh, Sharifian family of the, of the Hejaz. These are probably the most uh, noble Arab family around. They have been guardians uh, of the sanctuary in Mecca, since the uh, 9th and 10th century. So they've been around for nearly a 1,000 years, and nobody could uh, really question their uh, pedigree or lineage, which traces back to the Prophet Muhammad through his uh, grandson, Hassan. And they have been hereditary uh, uh, custodians and guardians of, of the shrine in uh, Mecca. Now, why is that really a significant uh, position to have? Because the, the main task was to guard and to safeguard and to look after pilgrims going to Mecca. And as you know, this is one of the pillars of the religion of Islam. So being custodians over the sanctuary gave them enormous prestige and gave them also an enormous uh, leverage on the political powers that be. And whatever uh, empire uh, bestrode the, the, uh, the area or the continent one way or another, had to deal with the claims of the rulers of Mecca. Uh, and throughout the various ups and downs and uh, vicissitudes of the Islamic empires, they maintained their privileged position as guardians uh, of, the, of the Holy Sanctuary. And when the Ottomans took over the Middle East uh, in the early 16th century, they also recognized the uh, supremacy of this family, which in turn uh, recognized Ottoman uh, authority or suzerainty over the Hejaz. Now, the Ottoman Empire, and by, by the time the 18th century rolls around, ha, had lost really uh, a number of its outlying territories and was in some ways uh, a, decaying, a decaying entity, somehow left out by the Industrial Revolution. And uh, Ottoman authority uh, retreated from the outlying, uh, outlying provinces, in particular the Hejaz. So they had a great deal of autonomy the uh, Sharifs of Mecca, until in the late 18th century, the Wahhabi movement uh, emerged out of the central wilds of Najd of the Arabian Peninsula and took over Mecca and Medina. And for a short period of time, the, this was probably the only t- period of time until the Wahhabis, uh, through Ibn Saud, took over the Hejaz in 1925, where the emirs of Mecca were not rulers over, over that territory. Uh, by the 19th century, uh, the, they came back to power as a result of Ottoman centralizing uh, moves, which tried to bring the Arab provinces back into the fold of the, of the Ottoman Empire. And that became much more acute 
as the Ottomans lost uh, huge swathes of territory in the Balkans. Until probably the mid-19th century, the Ottoman Empire, although Muslim in form, was to a large extent predominantly Christian, something like 60% of the population of the empire in the early 19th century was mainly in the uh, Balkan, Balkan provinces, what are now countries like uh, Romania, Serbia, Bulgaria, and Greece, and so on. The Ottomans then tried to reassert their authority uh, over, the, over, over the Hejaz and part of the process of reforming uh, the empire. Uh, and in the process, they began to play various clans of the Sharifate family against each other. Uh, and while supporting the existing emir, they always kept a kind of replacement sharif or emir in Istanbul under close authority. Faisal's father, Hussein, was just such a person. He was uh, called to Istanbul. Faisal was born in 1883 in Taif, which is uh, a few uh, tens of miles, uh, maybe about 40 or 50 miles uh, southwest of Mecca. He was then... Uh, he then moved while he was uh, quite young, around eight years old, to Istanbul, where his father had been recalled there by the, uh, by the Sultan, Sultan Abdul Hamid. And the first few years of his life, he was raised by the Bedouin tribe of uh, Banu Utayba. This is normal Arab. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I, I think I took too long in describing the background. In any case, uh, he, he uh, moved from Istanbul uh, back, back to the Arabian Peninsula in uh, the early, uh, around 1908, 1909, after the revolution. And uh, thereupon, he became the right-hand man of his father in trying to put down various rebellions that took place in the, uh, in the Hejaz uh, prior to the uh, outbreak of World War I. The outbreak of World War I, we find him uh, becoming close to the Arab secret societies, the early nationalist movement. And when the rebellion broke out, he became the field commander and was responsible for the various military uh, victories, as it were, of the Arabs throughout the, uh, uh, throughout the campaign, leading to the uh, occupation or the capture of Damascus in October 1918. He then represented the Arab cause at the Paris uh, Peace Conference uh, and then became, for a very short time, king of an independent Arab government in Syria, which was then overthrown by the French, and then uh, in 1921, uh, he came to Iraq and after a plebiscite became king of Iraq and was responsible really for building the modern state of Iraq. Uh, I don't think I have much more time to elaborate. Another couple of minutes. So what we have, what we have I try to encapsulate uh, really research that has been going on in my mind and in actual uh, fact since 1998 in a very short uh, very short uh, exposition. Uh, the most important uh, uh, factor about Faisal is that he went through various uh, transformations from an, uh, a, a commander of his, his father's and the Ottoman army's forces in the campaigns against rebels in Arabia to the field commander of uh, the, Arab, uh, the Arab revolt to representing the Arab cause to then becoming a, an advocate of the idea of an, uh, of an Arab, a moderate Arab nationalism reflected in a confederation of Arab states. And after this was uh, derailed by the French uh, because of the various agreements that they had uh, un uh, undertaken with the British during the war, 
uh, in which Syria and Lebanon came under their control, he was ousted from uh, the first Arab, independent Arab state in Syria as a result of uh, French uh, uh, military advance that came uh, to a culmination in the Battle of Maysaloon. Uh, he was then adrift, as it were, for uh, several months uh, in Europe, trying to continue to promote the, the cause of an Arab independent state in the t- former territories uh, of, uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, at that point, uh, he, uh, his, his presence in Europe coincided with the outbreak of a rebellion in Iraq in which uh, the British occupation, the British were fighting a separate, in a separate theater of war in Mesopotamia. Uh, he uh, found himself as being the right candidate, as it were, to, uh, to represent a new, the kind of government that the uh, British wanted to have uh, in mandated Iraq. Now, the mandate system was introduced uh, by, the, uh, by the League of Nations as a form of semi-colonial status for the former Arab territories uh, of the Ottoman Empire. And Faisal, throughout his, his, his life, both in Syria and in Iraq, uh, strongly resisted the idea of continuing dependence. And his period in power was marked by uh, a continuing and, in the end, successful struggle to wrest uh, Syria. He failed, but in Iraq he succeeded to wrest Iraq uh, from this dependent status into a form of independence, and, and uh, it ended with the entry of the country into the League of Nations in 1932. And that was going to be the template for the kind of states that he was hoping would emerge in the Middle East to uh, replace the former uh, imperial uh, uh, domination of the Ottoman Empire. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, thank you very much to both the speakers for that terrific uh, opening introduction, which I think sets the stage for the making of the model, modern Middle East. We're going to discuss the, the history in the books first and then go on to the, uh, to the legacy. And I think I'm going to start off by asking each of the uh, authors what they found most interesting, surprising or controversial in the other one's book. Uh, for me, the interesting thing was the sort of trajectory that Lawrence basically was broken by his experiences, that he um, had this terrifically successful wartime where he wasn't really... He, the British thought he was working for them, he thought he was working for the Arabs, although it didn't quite work out as he, as, as he hoped. But he was so crushed by the disappointments of, of post-war that he really had a kind of nervous breakdown. And although he um, occasionally met Faisal when Faisal visited... London. It wasn't, I think, a very, 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 very happy meetings, and he then um, died in that famous motorcycle accident. Whereas Faisal goes from being this aristocratic but rather provincial sort of tribal leader to becoming the the father of the modern Arab state and a really um, prof- a profoundly impressive um, uh, statesman who's able to outwit um, the British, although having they have first of all. Of course, outwitted him a bit. Um, anyway, that, that was that was to me the most interesting contract. But I'm going to ask you, Scott. First of all, reading reading um, Ali Alawi's book and um, Faisal, you obviously knew a lot already. But what what, what were the things that, that or the same thing that most struck you? I, I, I think what most struck me was how the 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 issues that that Faisal and Hussein, his his father, were facing during the war, 
and in this this constant um, trying to walk this balance between uh, uh, nationalist and 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 deeply religious uh, uh, fundamentalist how it, it can, this this was the rest of Faisal's life. I mean, he was always caught um, between trying to balance these two, trying to uh, trying to he he had to play to a degree to the to to the British and and earlier to the French, and every time he did that, of course, it, it would alienate another faction of of the population. So he, he I, Faisal just seemed like a man his entire life. Um, Caught in and having to walk this tightrope and always being uh, besieged from one side or the other or or both simultaneously. But walking it quite successfully. Really. Working it quite successfully, uh, but but I I think uh, <laughs> he looks like an ancient man. By when he I mean I know he was ill also, but when when he died it, he looks twenty years thirty years older than he actually was. Um, I and I I think it must have been just a, an absolutely exhausting existence um, every day. Um, Yes, it's interesting. Both Lawrence and he um, were very much suffering from the strains they put on their, their bodies. That's in right. Way. Yes, That's right. Yeah. And Ali, what, what was what was your your take on reading about uh, um, re- reading on both the about Lawrence and these other mysterious Westerners who were bouncing around the Middle East trying to carve it up to their satisfaction? Well, well I must say, I mean, uh, what I read from uh, from Scott's book, especially on the other the other characters, which I didn't really know much about. I mean, Aronson, Poofer, and these people. Um, Yale. William Yale, of, of course, left quite a, a, quite a significant cache of documents, that, uh, especially in, in, in his time in Syria, where, which played, I think, an important part in... in we should just explain that there are three... The three other characters are William Yale, who was an oil man working for the American government, um, Kurt Poofer, who was a German orientalist and spy trying to promote the German cause, and Aronson, who's Aaron, Aaron Aronson, what's yeah, his name? Yes, yeah, so there's these three other characters, and you weave them all, weave, weave them all together. But getting on to the historical events in the, um, in, in, in the book, do you, I mean, one, of, one of the controversial questions is um, Faisal's relationship with Weizmann, which is seen by many Arabs as a sort of arch betrayal. How could he possibly allow this sort of proto-Zionist entity to take root in a, in a deal that he didn't even get his side of the bargain. And this was a, an astonishing misjudgment, and he must have been duped, and it really taints his reputation in the eyes of um, some of the more sort of maximalist Arab historians. But that's, that's not really your view, is it? No, it's not, because you have to, I mean, first of all, put it into context, and secondly, you have to look at it in detail. Uh, the episode that, uh, that Scott referred to, where uh, Lawrence got Faisal to sign a, a kind of agreement uh, with Weizmann, had attached to it a very, very important codicil in Arabic, which was written uh, in Faisal's own, own hand, which said that none of the agreement that I have, so, I have signed uh, holds, it's null and void, uh, unless and until all the demands that have been set for by the Arabs are accepted. So whatever he had agreed with Weizmann in that famous in, uh, episode uh, was to some extent, not to some extent, was negated entirely by the codicil. Um, again, you have to put it in context. When Weizmann first came to visit Faisal uh, in, uh, uh, in Aqaba in 1918, uh, this was really at the behest of the uh, British government, the Eastern Committee, which, which was then conducting uh, the, the war, as it were, setting policy for the war uh, in the Near East. 
And there, at that point, the Zionist project, as seen both by, uh, both by the Arabs and as represented by Weizmann, did not really include the establishment of a political state in, Israel, uh, in, 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 Israel, in Palestine. The, the way it was presented was that uh, the European Jews, especially those from, uh, from Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, could find a home in, uh, in Palestine, uh, bring with them resources, bring with them technology, bring with them uh, the international connections. Uh, but there was no specifically political aspect to it. So the first meeting that Weizmann had with Faisal and Aqaba, the discussion revolved around whether uh, it was legitimate for, uh, uh, for the Arabs in Palestine or for the Arab movement to accept this kind of immigration. And Faisal had no problems with it. And nobody, I think, at that point had any problems with it because the Zionist project was not framed in terms of a specific uh, state for Jews. Once the Balfour Declaration became public knowledge and the ambiguities that were, that were, uh, that were implicit in it, his opinion changed and he became much more uh, uh, wary about representations made by Weizmann and, and others. Weizmann, I might, I might add, was seen as a, a kind of moderate voice compared to other exponents uh, of the Zionist project. So whenever he met with Faisal, he de-emphasized uh, constantly the political aspect of the project and emphasized that this was to the mutual benefit of all parties and so on. So I think trying to tar Faisal with the brush that he approved of what turned later out to be a political scheme uh, is, I think, uh, first of all, a misreading uh, of history and misreading of the facts out of and putting them out of context. Later on, I think, if you look at his position in, 19, in, the, in 1920 and subsequently, he was very clear that there has to be a strict division between uh, the, the, the presence and the acknowledgement and the accommodation and the willing acceptance of Jewish immigration from Europe into the Near East and the idea of a separate state that uh, is, uh, that is uh, designed around that entity. And in the end, I think he wrote a very detailed uh, exposition of his position to the then British Foreign Secretary, Sir John Simon, making it clear that if Jewish immigration into Palestine was unrestricted, and if it was going to end up in a political entity that would uh, not take into account the rights of the, uh, of the Arab uh, citizens of Palestine, or the residents of Palestine, then the thing will end in tears. Yeah. So it was a kind of evolution of a position. It's, it's very interesting reading both books with today's political and ethnographic lexicon in mind because the categories that we think of now were really quite different then. And I mean, Faisal didn't think that... He made a big distinction between Arab Jews in Baghdad, who he thought were Arabs first and Jews second... And the, and, the, and the question of sort of Jews, Jews, Jews and Zionism. And it was really quite touching. I think you portray in the book that he died heavily indebted because he was constantly giving donations to different charities, particularly for the minority religions in, um, in Baghdad. So he was supporting Jewish causes and Christian, different sorts of Christian causes and so on. It was very touching. But Scott, I want to talk, you, you, you're quite interested, I think, in this idea of that what we nowadays think of a state is, wasn't a particularly relevant or clear concept in the very confused 
conditions of, of, uh, of, ni- of 1918. That's right. Um, uh, and, I think that I, and I think that Lawrence was trying, among the things Lawrence was trying to warn his own government about was this, I, this idea of creating these, these artificial borders um, was going to lead to was going to lead to disaster, and by putting and and again, you know, I mentioned in, in my opening talk that Lawrence really studied in a, in a way that very few British, very few Europeans in, in period had at the time, the this the, the clan and tribal and familial structure of of Arab society, and I think understood if if you if you force some of the these these deep, deep rifts that existed in different places if you force these people into this political invention that it it could only lead to to trouble and it's 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 interesting to me and uh professor Lai and I have, have talked about this a little bit um i think what you're seeing now throughout the region is um a, a final dismantling, a final fracturing of of those boundaries that were imposed um, almost exactly a century ago. Um, uh, certainly, Iraq has has is has largely devolved into into three semi nations. Libya, even it, uh, almost even more so, and it very much it, they very much correspond the, the the boundaries of these these mini states now. The, um, very much correspond to the lines that existed under the Ottoman Empire before the, uh, the Europeans came in and drew lines. Yeah. Well, that's a very good springboard for getting on to the legacy. But before we do that, I'm very happy to take a few um, questions or points about history. I'll give initial preference to anybody who's actually read the books. Anyone here <laughs> actually read these books? Because you, you deserve, you de- if you've read the books, you deserve um, to come in first on the, as a sort of tri- 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 tribute to your... Um, Thorough preparation. Any, any, any questions? Yes, sir. Oh, well, that's wonderful. <laughs> then, then you just you just get a round of a round of applause. Having read, read, read the book. As anybody who's who's both read the books and got a, and uh, either either one or both the books and got a question about them. If not, we'll go to people who are going to read the books, which are of course um, on sale. Yes, sir, up there with the um, your um, yeah head, sir. Um, well, can you wait till the microphone comes, please? Thanks. Yes, uh, neither of the speakers have spoken about the rift between Sunni and Shiite. And I'm just wondering where Lawrence stood uh, in this conflict and indeed whether there was a conflict at that time with Faisal and the Shiites and the Sunnis because that is what we're dealing with at the moment. Yes, it's certainly one of the things we're we're dealing with at the the moment. I'm always hesitant about saying that anything is the thing. Um, But let's... um, You first, Scott. Um, I I mean, I think in Lawrence's times, certainly one of the... I'll just take this back to the the Ottoman Empire. One of the the great secrets of how the Ottoman Empire, which had been in a state of decline for a very, very long time, but one of the secrets of how it... It survived was the, the amount of decentralization to it that that different ethnic groups different different um, uh, religious groups had a, a tremendous amount of, of of autonomy so it was almost the very weakness of, of the of the central state was was the secret key to the, the, the Ottoman survival and so I and again, even just the the, the movement of peoples, it, 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 the, the world was a much much bigger place back then. So I, I don't think that, that by and large there was there was the big Shia Sunni um, issues. Of course, it was in certain places where these they were together, um, 
but by and large, they they still in, enjoyed this sort of autonomy from each other. I, I think that um, where there was where Lawrence more focused on the flashpoints was in in areas where there was much more uh, much more cosmopolitan, say like Lebanon, um, where you did have these different groups um, uh, living amongst each other. But I, I think in, in Broadbrush across the Middle East, it was it was less certainly less of an issue than it is today. I was very struck in your book about how little role Iran, or as it was then Persia, plays. I think you have one ch- a chunk of one chapter about securing the border with, um, with with Persia, but we've got now with modern Iran a kind of mini a Shia sort of mini superpower, or at least a re- re- you know, would be regional hegemon, and which creates a whole sort of different dynamic to the Shia um, Sunni divide. But um, what, 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 what's your feeling about that question? No, I think this question is really very, very apt. Uh, the Shia-Sunni issue, as, as far as the early Arab national movement was concerned, and Faisal in particular, it was really uh, sectarian blind. The early Arab national movement had a number of Shias in it, so it wasn't a peculiarly Sunni affair. And Faisal himself had a number of, uh, of Shia advisors, one of whom, Rustam Haider, was his, possibly his closest friend and confidant. Faisal throughout, and the early Arab nationalist movement was like that, transcended sectarian borders and frontiers. Now, this is at the intellectual, ideological level. However, in specific countries, in Iraq in particular, there was, once uh, once the Anglo-Indian army invaded uh, Mesopotamia, which was a separate theater of war from uh, Syria and Palestine, uh, the, the Shia hierarchy, which to some extent was marginalized in the Ottoman Empire and was not given access to to, uh, privileged positions either in the administration or in the military, took the side of the Ottoman Empire. In fact, led a a large detachment to confront uh, the Anglo-Indian invaders. But within a very short period of time, sectarian issues emerged in Iraq as uh, one of the the key crises that Faisal faced in the early years in Iraq was a kind of rebellion by the, uh, by the Shia hierarchy, which rejected the kind of state that was evolving uh, in the country. However, Faisal himself, uh, there is absolutely no evidence that either he or even the family in which he was, uh, from which he, he came had any sectarian uh, notions or any sectarian uh, feelings. And he went out of his way to ensure that there was uh, a sectarian balance uh, at least at the, at the highest levels of government and has his own advisors. Thanks. Uh, we'll take two questions in a row. If you, um, Laura, if you could go to the, the lady at the back. In the meantime, the gentleman there, just next to you, just uh, you go first, sir, and then we have the lady. Thank you. I, mean, I think Lawrence... So, right sorry, can we, I, I was going to have this gentleman first and then sure. you. Yes, go ahead, sir. Um, as we deconstruct the way the countries currently exist in the Middle East, the obvious question, which I think comes out from both speakers' presentation, is for the future... Will there be an Arab nation getting together? Could you envisage Iraq and Syria coming together as a single country? And this question can now be asked in all innocence in Great Britain, where the United Kingdom is trying its best to uh, break down into its uh, devolved nations. Uh, So we understand the problems of putting together a country and keeping it together on uh, an Arab national basis... Why do you think that will happen, and if not, why not? 
Good, that's an excellent springboard for the next bit of the discussion, but I'm going to take this lady's question first. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes, I think that Lawrence, a writer, is as compelling a figure as Lawrence, a strategist. And my question, or my interest, is in the point where, where archaeology, and Lawrence was essentially as a young man living in the past, where archaeology flips into um, intelligence, which flips into military action. And that's an interesting point anyway for, 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 for all times. So I wonder if you could um, kind of comment on that, because there seems to be a different trajectory for him. He was going through archaeology, intelligence, action, um, in a kind of a parallel way to, to politicians and, and his military commanders. Would I'll, you agree with that? I'll give that to, to both the panelists. I have to say, having actually, if you actually read The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, if you don't do it without a, 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 a quite a detailed map and a notebook, behind, bits of it are really exceptionally heavy going. And he, I think there, there are bits of it that are brilliant. I, I would slightly disagree with you that he's uh, as, as good in... in, in uh, writing as he was in warfare. But, um, Scott, he's your special subject. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say I'm, I'm a bit in agreement with you. That it, it's, it might be a bit sacrilegious for a Lawrence biographer to, to, not, uh, to, to, to not adore Seven Pillars, but I, I think I'm a bit in your camp on that. Um, there's, there's, some, there's one in particular where he's, he's talking about a, a 59-hour camel trip a, across a desert, and there was a, a moment in reading... So in place where I, I felt it was taking me 59 hours to read about this trip. <laughs> um, I, as I said earlier, I think um, uh, once Lawrence got to Arabia, um, I think his, his, he was one of these people, and we've all met them at times, who, who seemed to have this instant affinity for a foreign... Uh, instant affinity and instant understanding for a foreign culture. And I think that for Lawrence, that was, was the, the Arab world. And I think very quickly uh, he became less of an archaeologist and more of a, a, a cultural anthropologist and was fascinated by, by the way and probably reminded him in some ways of he'd studied medieval military history at, at Oxford. And it's, it's interesting when he gets to, after the Arab Revolt, when he gets to Arabia, I think two things that very much stood Lawrence in good stead and, and made him uniquely suited to the role he played more than any other British officer who was there, certainly, was, A, he understood this from the time he had spent in, in Karkamish at the archaeological uh, site. He understood the way Arab society was put together, but also he understood how to wage war in this, in this uh, really harsh uh, environment. Uh, waging war in, in Arabia at the beginning of the 20th century looked very much like you, you dealt with the same primal issues you dealt with uh, in war in 14th century Europe. Um, like I want to attack here, but wh- where's the water? Where's the forage for my animals? Um, so I, I, think it made, I think it made Lawrence uh, really uniquely, uniquely suited for that. Um, I'm not sure I've answered the question. No, it's a good yeah? answer. It's a very good answer. Anyway. <laughs> and and, and I, I was just wondering, from, from, an, from an Arab point of view, um, how is Lawrence seen? Because on the one hand, he sympathised with you. On the other hand, he let you down. He did... I mean, this was an era when the British and other foreign officers still genuinely had people who spoke foreign languages, and there were wonderful titles like Oriental Secretary and Dragoman and so on. And so, in a sense, any sort of expertise in these... Um, dire conditions of today. It was a sort of you know, poignant memory of a, of a bygone age for us. But how, 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 how is he seen in, in, in sort of Iraqi or Arab historiography? 
Well, I, mean, I can tell you how I see him, but I mean, in Arab historiography, generally, he's seen to be basically a cat's paw of British imperialism. This is sort of the received wisdom, and this person was, above all, an intelligence officer, and his whatever his other exploits and his antics and so on, he was single-mindedly focused on extending British imperial interests in the Middle East. However, this is a more nuanced view, which is now beginning to emerge in the Arab world, really sees him in a different light. The, the great disconnect between the Arab perspective on Lawrence, as far as I'm concerned, and as it were, the Eurocentric or the Western-centric perspective, is that I don't think that uh, he, he was not a person who had reached the heights to which uh, people generally attribute to him. For example, in the military campaigns, uh, 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 in the Arab Revolt, there are, three, uh, there are three events or major incidents in which Lawrence is seen to be uh, instrumental. One of them is the fall of Aqaba. The other one is the Battle of Tafila, for which he was awarded a DSO. And the third one is the, are the events uh, before and during the capture of Damascus. Let's just have the map up again. I'm not sure these places are all on the map, but at least Damascus is. I mean, these, these three events are very, very significant uh, uh, elements of, uh, of the seven pillars of wisdom. A, a, lot of, a lot of the Lawrence myth, as it were, is based on that. The Battle of Aqaba itself was not so much Lawrence's brainchild. Faisal had thought about it uh, months before. It was an... an just explain, so Aqaba, annoyingly, is not on this map. Can you just explain to you? Aqaba is at the head of the Gulf of Suez. And its yes, significance so, so. is that, yeah. from Faisal's point of view, or from the Arab revolt's point of view, the significance was that it was the first point outside of the Arabian Peninsula and therefore was a kind of marker for the Arab movement in Syria. So the plan to occupy or to attack Aqaba was already being conceived in the minds of others. When it came to the operational details, the person who actually did the management of the battle was a man called Sharif Nasser. And the, when, when the original uh, crew left, uh, left Wedge, which is where Faisal's forward camp was to Aqaba, Lawrence was not even part of it. He wanted to be included, and after representations, he was brought in as an explosive expert. The, there were only a few dozen people who, who moved. So in order to mobilize the tribes to converge on Aqaba, it, it could not have been done by a person like Lawrence. It was done by Sharif Nasser through constant negotiations with tribes and, and cajoling and bribing and paying in order to create a force that attacked. Now, that doesn't say that Lawrence did not play a part in the actual battle. He did. He was a very brave man. But he, you cannot see him as the uh, fulcrum, as it were, of that. Of so that. Your, your point is not that he was the sinister, ge- the sinister genius, but just a bit self, maybe a little bit overrated and over, overpromoted. I think so. I think he also artfully embellished his accounts. He, because I think he knew that there would be no counter-narrative for a long time coming from an Arab source. But these, these memoirs have, in the last few, few years, have come out. For some reason, they've remained unpublished for eight years, but now they're coming out. And it shows the different balance of forces and the different actors. For example, again, the Battle of Tafila, where he was awarded a DSO for his action. The, there's detailed accounts, not only from the Arab side, but from the Turkish side. Yes. From the, the side that was defeated, as it were, as a result of the opening of the Ottoman archives, which shows that the, the, the actual battles were, I mean, for example, the Battle of Tafila was mainly by Iraqi officers, and the bravery of a man called 
مخلص مولود مخلص carried the day so it was it was an embellished account that's how I see it and to some extent it is not a true uh, and a very voracious uh, uh, exposition of what happened in the Arab revolt. Good. Well, well I think, sorry, I, I want to move on to the, we, we had a great question about um, the, the, the modern Arab world. So did you want to make any further point on that or should we move on? Um, sure. I, could I just make one quick point about, yes. I, I actually, I, I agree with you about, about Tafila, um, but in Aqaba, I think that Lawrence actually did play a very, a, a very central role. And, um, oh good, the map's still there. Um, the, the British and French plan, yeah, uh, the British and French plan, one reason why they wanted to be involved in, in capturing Aqaba was, and there, there's records of this in, in, in British military correspondence, they saw it as a way to box out the Arab revolt from moving into Syria. So, um, I, and I, I do believe that Lawrence was instrumental in coming up with the idea of, of, of going overland to, to come at Aqaba from behind. And it's significant that he did so without ever telling a, a senior British officer, because he knew if he did tell them, he wouldn't, allow, he wouldn't be allowed to do it. And uh, I, I, taking Aqaba was very easy, but, it, but if it had, was done with British and French assistance, then they could box the Arabs there. Right. So. Um, when, you, when you've bought the books and read them, you'll understand the true, the, the true brilliance of the discussion we've just been having. Um, so I get it... So I'd, I'm now going to I'm now going to answer the excellent question here from the gentleman in the um, in the yellow tie, which is the springboard for the sort of final half hour of our discussion about the roots, um, the, 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 the roots in the, this era of the modern um, uh, condition of the Middle East and what conclusions we can um, we can draw. So. Um, do you both remember the question? Yes, you go first. Uh, sure, I, um, I'll an- answer it in a slightly roundabout way. Um, uh, in 2006, 2007, I was spending a lot of time in Egypt, and um, and this, I remember this one this one morning meeting with a, a woman I was interviewing, and and she was very distraught, and uh, she said, oh, "Did you hear what happened this morning? There was a car bomb. Is at least 80 people dead?" And I said, "Where where did this happen?" She said, "Well, Baghdad." Um, and, it's, and this happened again and again while I was in, in, in Cairo. And it occurred to me that there, and I, I've not experienced this in any other part of the world, there, there is this, I think there is this, um, this, this sense of kinship that exists throughout the Arab world um, that, that transcends these national lines. You know, if, if, some, if, I, if I was in Norway and there had been some horrible thing in Greece, people wouldn't have had the same as fellow Europeans uh, it, it, they wouldn't have had the same reaction, I don't believe. Um, so, so I think all along there is this, there is this glue, with, and it's this sense of pan-Arab consciousness. And um, it's very hard to see how that plays at, at any time in the near future, but amid this period of, of disintegration and fracturing that's going on throughout the region... I th- and maybe I'm, it's kind of grasping at straws, but I, I see that that may, in, at some point, if things uh, calm down, it may be a, a kind of glue that that, that creates a, a, a broader, a, not, certainly not one nation state, but it, but it creates a more of, a, of, of an idea that we're all in this together. So you think, so in short, pan-Arabism is not dead? Pan- and, I, and I think that's one of the, it's not dead, and I think it's, it's, it's one of, may, potentially one of the last hopes in the, in the area. Got it. I suppose the, the, the other point one could make, and I certainly felt this very strongly reading, reading your book, was that 
Um, although people complained like mad about the Ottoman Empire, for most people, it was a golden age compared with what happened next. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, wax nostalgic about the Ottoman Empire, but the Arabs for, for hundreds of years, or the peoples of the Middle East, or the Near East, let's call it that, for hundreds of years, lived under a certain system with which, with, which, with, with which they were familiar, an imperial system that had the forms uh, of Islam, but was extremely decentralized and allowed quite large latitude for particular religious communities. So it was a, a state with which they were comfortable. The national movement, the national idea, came very late to the Arab world. Uh, you can't talk about an Arab national movement until probably the early part of the 20th century. And certainly it, it, got a, uh, it was accelerated during World War I. But nevertheless, it was still seen, the Arabs still saw their future. And Faisal too, until 1916, tried to see or envisage a future for the Arabs within the, the, the framework of a decentralized Ottoman Empire. Now, what happened in World War I is that three conflicting uh, promises or three conflicting policies uh, came about, which subsequently led to what I think was a disastrous outcome for the Arabs. One is the so-called Hussein McMahon correspondence, which, whichever way you read it, gave a kind of implicit support by the, uh, by the British, by the dominant imperial power, for an Arab state or states reasonably independent in the framework of the Arab provinces of the Near East. Certain areas were excluded. Egypt was excluded. Aden was excluded. Maybe Basra in, in Iraq would have been excluded. But nevertheless, most of the Arab provinces of the Near East were supposed to be uh, formed in a kind of confederate state with British blessing. The second uh, uh, you know, contradictory policy was Sykes-Picot, which preceded the... Uh, uh, the Hussein McMahon correspondence, which envisaged an imperial presence for France, Britain, and also Russia in the Near East. Russia was given all of Eastern Turkey as part of, uh, of course, the Russian aspect fell out after the Bolshevik Revolution. So it contradicted the, ter- the, the spirit, as it were, of the Hussein McMahon uh, uh, agreement. <coughs> the third thing that came into the pot was the Balfour Declaration, which in its studied ambiguity uh, conflated, as it were, the, the issue of Jewish immigration into Palestine with the creation of a state and the framework of a national home. The subsequent states that emerged out of, out of, this, out of this mess, the so-called national states in the, in the Middle East, have proved to be extremely unstable. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. All the successor states of the Ottoman Empire and the former Arab provinces of the Near East have either disappeared, for example, Hejaz, dismembered Palestine, subject to civil wars, Iraq, Syria, or in a state of near civil war, which is Lebanon. So it is inherently, the structures that have emerged are inherently unstable. I agree with Scott here, is that although Arab nationalism in a strident, extreme, radical form, as expounded either by Nasser or the Ba'ath Party, is, I think is dead and buried, some form of confederal system that will bring the Arabs of the Middle East uh, closer together, is the only, I think, uh, game in town. After we've, we've tried everything else. We've tried militarism. We've tried near-fascist government. We've tried extreme radical governments. We've tried socialism. We've tried even communism in South Yemen. And now we have a kind of Islamist moment. There is no other uh, workable framework in which you can 
bring ethno-sectarian differences and allow them to be transcended, except in some kind of mild Arab patriotism, which Faisal propounded. So we're going back again, we're going back to the future, as it were, where we started from. So do you, so you think this, that mild Arab patriotism can transcend the Sunni-Shia divide and also um, Muslim-Christian, insofar as there are any Christians left? It has to be. There, yeah. there is just no other format, because <laughs> any other format will imply a kind of dominance of one group or one community or one ideology over this, or fragmentation. And Good, let's have some more questions. Um, I, I want, uh, there's a gentleman there who's been very patient. We've also got a wonderful microphone up there, which has been totally unused so far. So if in the gallery you want to make a question, if you can make your way round and cue in a reasonably orderly way at that microphone, I'll make sure that you get um, your say too. But let's go ahead. You, you, sir, next to the stairs. My question is to Ali Alawi. Hi, Ali. Um, you start your book... Uh, by discussing and describing, and very movingly, I think, the uh, passing away of uh, King Faisal. Now, I'm an Iraqi, and all Iraqis would agree that he died too young. My question to you, maybe a little naive, uh, would you speculate as how Iraq would look, how it would be, and maybe perhaps the Middle East, had Faisal died at the age of 70? Excellent. Very good question. I'm, I'm, I think I'll take a couple more if there are... Yes, there's a gentleman there at the back who's been very patient, second row at the back, wearing a dark jacket. And there's a, a lady there, yes, in the pink scarf. You go ahead first, ma'am. Um, can you ever see Saudi Arabia agreeing to this vision of a united Arab state? Good. Excellent question. A few billion petrodollars sitting in the way of your vision um, and a certain amount of Wahhabism. Um, yes, go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, sir. Uh, my question is a bit of a follow-up, actually, to, to that last one. Um, the the early option, op, uh, the early opportunities the Arabs have had to work in a pan-Arab um, way, for instance, the '60s war against Israel, or even something like OPEC, have not been um, vast successes. So, what do you see as the obstacles to a sort of pan-Arab um, ideal being realised? Right. Three questions. I'll get to you first, Ali. Speculate on if Faisal had lived. Um, what do we do about the Saudis? And, uh, <laughs> and any, 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 practical, any, any practical examples of uh, pan-Arab cooperation, all in about two or three minutes, please. <laughs> well, I mean, to answer uh, uh, whether what would happen to Iraq if Faisal had lived, I think I, I would even extend it what would happen to the Middle East if Faisal had lived sort of the biblical three score and ten years. He would have died then in 1953 instead of 1933. I honestly believe that there would have been a very, very powerful counter-narrative to the Zionist narrative in Palestine. I really think so, because Faisal's overarching concern was to create a, a sense of nationhood for disparate groups and communities in which the Jews had a place. So there was a vision, as it were, of Arab Jews with a strong Arab identity in addition to their Jewish identity which would have provided, I think, a very strong uh, counter-narrative to the, uh, to the Zionist claim that they represented international Jewry from whatever part of the world. The other thing I think would have happened is that the institutions of the modern Iraqi state would not have been degraded the way that they were uh, in, in, 19, uh, in the various coup d'etats that happened after, after he died. I don't think we'd have had the kind of confrontation uh, with the British in 1942 that led to another invasion and all the subsequent traumas that came from that. 
Now, these are, I don't want to go into counterfactual history, but I think it would have been a different outcome, certainly. And when he died, it wasn't just that Iraqis grieved. The entire Middle East grieved. It was a scenes of grief that in some ways exceeded those that uh, uh, came with the death of Nasser. Millions of people throughout the, the area uh, immediately or instinctively felt that a, a, a historic leader has departed from the scene. As for the Saudis, uh, I've, I honestly think that the, we have to uh, plan for a kind of post-princely geriatric regime. If this, if this crew, which has an average age of 80, uh, leaves the scene in the next few years, there are strong centrifugal forces inside, inside Saudi Arabia which have been covered up by this uh, apparent homogeneity. They may or may not erupt. Uh, but I wouldn't bank on Saudi, uh, Saudi stability 10 years down the line. The other thing that, that uh, whether there are any incidents or cases of pan-Arab cooperation, absolutely none of any consequence. <laughs> but that doesn't really negate the idea that one should, one should work towards that end. Very good. Let's have some more. Let's have, did you want to come back on it? No, no, I... I, I yeah. So what was the, I'm not sure which the applause was for. Let's have some more questions. Go ahead. Yes, the gentleman there in the grey shirt at the back. And then there's... Um, and a lady... You put your hand up again. There's someone... Ha- you have to make your way round to the microphone, I think. I'm not sure we've got a... Yes. Yes, go ahead. Uh, is there a chance of a modern-day Faisal emerging that will provide this leadership that the Arabs so badly need. Excellent. Modern-day Faisal, where is he? Would he please stand up? Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a question. Someone at the, uh, up there was trying to ask a question, but I don't know whether they've made it to the microphone yet. In the meantime, is that there was a hand down here I saw. Are you going to ask a question, sir? Oh, yes, thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, when, when you get to the microphone, please. Uh, I was interested in what you said, Scott, right at the beginning, that when um, Lawrence wanted to study the Arab, you know, he went to Syria and studied Arab, and you were talking about Arabs, the structure of Arab society there as being very representative of Arab culture. That's what was implied in what you said. Now, today, we tend to think of Syria, Lebanon, you know, the Levant, Arabs, as being quite different from the Gulf Arabs. I'd like you to comment on, you know, was it really that similar at the time, and is it now very different from what it was then? I mean, I know there's still the tribal, you know, structures, etc. those are still there, but we do still kind of think of it as being quite different. Thank you. Yeah. And then we have one more question. Chap at the back in the pale blue shirt, if you can uh, get the microphone to him. I think I'll go to you first, Scott, and then... Um, um, Ali Alawi next, yes. Yeah. Wait, let's just the microphone get along that. Pass it along quickly. There we are. Thank you. Go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you. This is a question for uh, Professor Ali. Um, I'm curious how Iraq would ever play a part in this unified Arabia uh, until it starts to tolerate the idea of an independent Kurdistan. Right. Good. Another nice, easy question. <laughs> uh, Scott, you go first. Yeah, um, when I was talking about I, I, when of, of Lawrence uh, studying the, uh, the the clan and tribal structure, the gentleman's question up there of uh, in Syria. Um, no, I, I don't think that, that you can't say this this exists in the same form throughout. But I th- 
I think what Lawrence learned in Syria is when he got to Arabia, that in those, those strictures and this idea of, of blood feuds between tribes, between clans, um, was, was that much more pronounced in Arabia. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was very impressed with, from, the, from the first moment he met Faisal. Faisal would, would, and throughout the time that Lawrence was with Faisal, uh, Faisal would gather around sheikhs uh, around him, and it would be this very, very protracted process of coming to a consensus among different families, different tribes, different clans. And again, I think it was you know for, to much, much greater import, and and potentially a much greater problem in Arabia than in Syria. But Syria was. Siri was Lawrence's uh, education to that. To, to, you're welcome to come back on, on that, but also the question of where's the, the, where are the Faisal of today? I suspect he's probably teaching at an American university <laughs> <laughs> and worried it would be blown up, blown up in a car bomb or shot if he went back. And, and then the second question of, of, of what, about, what about the Kurds? I think, I mean, to find, to find a Faisal of today, you, you need to have a person who really privileges the idea of patience, forbearance, uh, wisdom, as it were, and you know, toleration, in contrast to the idea of a leader as being always powerful and strong and domineering and so on. So it requires, I think, a structural shift in the minds, minds of people as to the kind of leader that, that is needed. What is, what is certain now is that we have appalling and have had appalling leadership. Um, I would say since, since the 1930s, the only person who comes up, as it were, to a kind of uh, international quality of leadership with great faults is Nasser. But Nasser, I think, lost the plot somewhere in the mid-60s and ended up being, uh, I think, a kind of uh, shadow of his, of his former self uh, in the 1950s. So to, to bring back a person like Faisal, you have to talk about the virtues of such leadership and the virtues of of. Uh, moderation, toleration, and so on, are not privileged over strength and power and control, then you're not likely to bring. And I think in order for us to get to that point, we have to go through another cycle of extreme uh, violence and destructiveness, which we seem to be going through now. But in time, I think it will emerge, because ultimately there is just no, there is no other way of managing the affairs uh, of the area. Now, the Kurds, you mentioned the Kurds and how, how, how that would impinge on the idea of a kind of uh, uh, a new version of pan-Arabism. Uh, a new version of pan-Arabism cannot be a, a retread of the old version. It cannot be one in which uh, the whole thing is built around the greatness and glory of this particular ethnicity. It has to be in the form that was originally proposed, which is a kind of mild... Uh, association of people within a, a kind of uh, within a within a framework that that gives the Arabic language, the Arabic culture, a, not a privileged position but a unifying position. The Kurds had a had a quite a significant place in the power system in Iraq during the monarchy. So there were obviously people who who rejected it and who were in constant rebellion. In some ways, Kurdish nationalism is probably the last of the 19th century nationalisms that is trying to find an expression in the form of a state. But if you, if you can create the framework, uh, an accommodating framework, which includes them, 
there's no reason why, why, why you can't bring this greater Arab confederation into being with, with the Kurds not having a, a, an accommodating and a very uh, strong position in it. After all, they had that before in, uh, in, in the last years of the Ottoman Empire. Good. There's a few more questions. There's a lady at the back with the red shirt and a gentleman here in the second row. If you just pass the microphone to him. We have you first, sir, and then the lady. Um, we've heard a lot about, heard a lot about men uh, drawing lines on the map and redrawing the lines. Could, I wonder if we could introduce a woman into the conversation. Um, and my question is whether in your research for both of the authors, Gertrude Bell figures much... Or whether um, Nicole Kidman's forthcoming portrayal is going to lead us to overhype yet another British imperial figure beyond what her influence actually was. I'm very so glad you mentioned that. There's also the very interesting case of Weizmann's sister, who plays a role that's not always um, celebrated in the conventional narratives. We'll get onto that in a moment. Go ahead, ma'am. Yes, in the red, red shirt. I had a very similar question that when you were talking about the development, the political development of King Faisal, uh, do you think the influence of Gertrude Bell uh, was important or did, was more made of it? It was said in the various books, I'm sorry if I'm making a speech, I just happened to have read a couple of books about her, and it was she who were, was able to explain to her British employers, she's a member of the British intelligence system, how the the Arab tribes were formed and that she helped Faisal to somehow establish a balance between how the Brits, the British, could hold the the tribes together and at the same time he could eventually lose the British... Uh, Anyway, did you, is, would you say the influence of Gertrude Bell was significant or not? Yes, is that, well, thank you very much for, 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 for that. And I'll chuck in a question of my own. And is, is one, you, that lady, you've had one question already, but I'll give you another very short one, because your first one was so good. Um, do you think democracy is hindering or helping, actually, the development of the countries in the Middle East. Okay, thank you. And I'm going to chuck in, I think this will probably be our last round. We're in the final, um, just over 10 minutes. But I I have a question also about the role of Britain. It's really, what I find striking about reading both books is the enormous impact that Britain had on the lives and fates of the people concerned and how it's almost totally unknown outside, I imagine, SOAS and St Anthony's College, Oxford and a few other um, places of, of learning. I thought most of the events and people described here, including the fantastic, Gertrude, fantastically interesting Gertrude Bell, um, are, are largely a closed book. So I'm, I'd be interested in, in your, your perspective and perhaps you have a very barbed remark about America as well. I think you say at one point, <laughs> not the first time America gets it completely wrong. <laughs> So, um, so let, let's have, have a, I'd like to hear both your views on Gertrude Bell and both your views on um, Britain, Britain, Britain stroke America. And I think with that, we'll probably, we'll probably um, be out of time. Scott, you go first. Um, I, I can be very uh, quick about Gertrude Bell. Uh, uh, incredible figure. Um, I don't talk about her in my book uh, because I, uh, Lawrence and the other characters in my book, it was, it was exclusively through, virtually exclusively through Palestine and western Syria, Gertrude Bell spent most of the war in, in uh, Iraq. Uh, 
I, I, she did play a very significant role after the war at the Cairo conference. Um, and I, I just have a very short section in my, in my epilogue about the Cairo conference that, that, Laura, that Lawrence also was involved in. Um, just give us a few words on Miss, Miss Weitzman, because that's... Just, oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Give, give, give <laughs> yeah. it to us in 90, 90 seconds. 90 it's seconds. Ex- extraordinary words. Um, Minna Weitzman was Heim Weitzman's uh, little sister, and... Um, uh, she was a she was a doctor. She she had been trained in Germany. She ended up in Palestine just before the war, as a, as a female surgeon. Um, she ends up being the lover of my uh, the German counterintelligence agent, and uh, the, the, the German counterintelligence agent, Kurt Prufer is trying to figure out a way to to, um, to find out what's happening in British held Egypt. And he comes up with the idea that a lot of a lot of Jews are leaving Palestine. Um, and a lot of them are pro-German, or they're, uh, more they're anti-Russian, uh, the Russians being part of the, the alliance with Britain and France. So he, uh, Prufer actually ended up smug, uh, having his own mistress become one of the first spies he sends to Cairo. She's there for four or five months, and it is rather the toast of Cairo, um, again, one of the few female surgeons at the time. Uh, she gets caught. And um, but she's so charming and so beautiful that even the Russian ambassador steps in to to speak in her defense. Uh, she goes. She is exiled to Russia. She comes back uh, when the state of Israel is created and, and becomes a doctor there. The interesting. And then Kurt Prufer went on to become a Nazi diplomat in the 1930s and, and Hitler's ambassador to Brazil. When. Uh, I'm trying to do the 90 seconds. It's a complicated story. <laughs> Just by talking fast. Um, in, in Heim Weitzman's uh, autobiography, which is 900 pages, um, there's not one mention of, uh, of his sister, um, uh, Minnie. Minna. I think just the, the simple phrase, Heim Weitzman's sister spied for the Germans and, <laughs> and, her, and her case officer later became a Nazi diplomat is already pretty... Nice to see, I should. That's pretty... <laughs> yeah. That, that's good. Um, so anyway, no, um, Ali, talk, talk, Gertrude Bell and then Lessons, Lessons for the West, and if, you've, if we have time, which we probably do, a few words on whether democracy is the solution or the problem. Uh, generally, I would say Gertrude Bell has a better, better audience in Iraq than Lawrence does. Uh, she played, in some ways, a constructive part in a, for a very short period of time, a central part in the uh, various machinations that went uh, during the Cairo conference. And also she played an important advisory role to Faisal in the first, I would say, 18 months of his rule in Iraq. She was very close to uh, Sir Percy Cox, who was the first high commissioner, and she was his uh, advisor, oriental secretary, and so on. But the greatest British imperial administrator in Iraq was not Percy Cox, but a man called Sir Henry Dobbs, who, took, uh, who was indifferent and perhaps even disliked Gertrude Bell. So her influence collapsed precipitously after 19, 1923, and then she became less and less of use to Faisal as an advisor, except perhaps on tribal, uh, uh, tribal affairs, and she withdrew into a kind semi, I won't say uh, she, she wasn't a recluse, but she withdrew into managing her pet schemes, including uh, founding of the Iraqi Archaeological Museum. In the end, she died uh, probably a suicide, uh, and she couldn't, uh, I think, adjust to the loss of her influence. So she had a brief moment 
uh, I would say, with the British during World War I, in independent Iraq for about 18 months, and was at first an opponent of and then a convert to the cause of Faisal. And she sort of hero-worshipped him, if you, if you read the diaries and the entries that she had about him. Uh, but she, she has quite a, a good place, I think, in, in the hearts of, uh, of Iraqis, even though some groups, some communities think of her as being biased against them, uh, which may be true, but that's not a matter. Uh, as for democracy... Uh, let's, do, let's, do, well, let's do democracy first and then yes. Britain. Okay. Uh, democracy, I think, is, is without institutions, is uh, basically a recipe for disaster. And, in fact, it's turning into that. If democracy is defined as an electoral mechanism for choosing political leaders in the absence of institutional, particularly uh, legal frameworks, strong uh, institutions, judiciary and so on, it will lead to chaos, and it has. Uh, as for the British, let uh, Scott answer first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Scott, you can do the British and the Americans. All right. All right. <laughs> um, I think what I was very much struck by uh, in, uh, in, in researching this book was the, deg- the degree to which Lawrence trying to head off his own government, uh, taking a, a disastrous course in the Middle East, how much it mirrored as an American, my government's, and not that I was in Lawrence's position to warn my government, um, but how, the, this, the heedless march into Iraq uh, in 2003. And, how, and um, again and again, this, this, I, the, the hubris of the empire that, and it's a combination of hubris and arrogance and ignorance and wishful thinking that, that they are going to go into these places and they're going to welcome them. Or, or at least, maybe in the British, I, I don't think the British thought the locals were going to welcome them, at least tolerate them. Um, where the Americans, I think, had a much more naive idea of, of in Iraq. And th- these voices of, of dissent, um, which are often a dissent based on a certain knowledge of the place, um, are, are just shunted aside. And, 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 and in both cases, are often seen as unpatriotic. Um, and so I was... In writing this, and especially as I got towards the end of uh, the Paris Peace Conference, I was just so struck in so many things I read and, and of this movement within the British Foreign Office to marginalize Lawrence, that he was, he was, he was seen as a troublemaker and, and a fly in the ointment of, of the French and, and the British tidying things up, how much it, how much it echoed to, to, to what happened in, in, in my country in early 2000s. Did the Americans treat William Yale more seriously than the Brits treated Lawrence in the end? No, I, no. And, and in fact, even William Yale is a, is, a, is, a, is a great... He was the only American field intelligence officer in the entire Middle East. He was based in Cairo. And he sent weekly reports back to... There was no CIA or anything then. It was the State Department. He was a special agent for the State Department. He sent weekly reports, uh, and I never saw any cable traffic back to him. Uh, it, 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 was clear, it was clear no one was reading his reports. And to a couple of points, of, uh, he would ask them questions. It's like, did you get my last report? What do you think about this idea? And utter silence. So. <laughs> And Ali, you, you, one of your earlier books um, was called The Occupation of Iraq, Winning the War, Losing the Peace. And um, I guess that if it hadn't been for the invasion, you'd never have become um, defence minister or finance minister. You might think that was quite a good thing. 
No, I mean, I, 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 was, I'm, I was against the idea of a military uh, invasion of Iraq or an occupation, obviously, I was against it. But there was a certain inevitability to it, the way it... But if, if you have a sort of a historical perspective and see what the British did in 1920-21 in building up the state and what the Americans did, I think, uh, you know, the British should feel somewhat proud, I think, of their achievements in Iraq. I'm not, I'm not an apologist for, for you know, imperialism, but British uh, administration in Iraq played a very important part in creating the institutional frameworks of the state. And you had really a number of advisors there who were in many ways selfless, spent uh, years, sometimes decades, in thankless tasks, building up these, the uh, rudiments of administration. And this continued for a long while. So uh, you, can, you, you, you can make, I think, a positive balance sheet about Iraq's experience with the British uh, post-World uh, War I. Uh, the question is that it's not so much what the British uh, did or didn't do. By and large, I think they were, it was a positive influence, uh, especially, as I said, when, when it comes to administration, the management of the country, introducing uh, systems and so on and taking the institutions that they proposed seriously, probably more so than the Iraqis that subsequently were involved in managing them. So I don't think it was a completely negative experience. And if you compare the experience of the British in Iraq or the experience of the Iraqis with the British and the experience of the Syrians with the French, you can see the difference. And you can see that while one ended in bitterness and conflict, it is true that the British presence in Iraq collapsed in 1958. But it didn't leave the sense of great uh, embitteredness that other colonial powers had in their... In their. Now, the, the sense of dependency and so on obviously is not you know, tolerable over the long run. But you, one must put things in context. In 1921, when Iraq was formed, it was basically uh, uh, the, the bringing together of uh, Ottoman provinces one of which did not even join Iraq until a third of the country did not become part of the country until 1926. So the British played a part, I think, in, 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 in forming and securing the state, a lesser part than the king. But nevertheless, I think not, a, not an altogether bad, uh, bad experience. Well, on that note, um, which I was expecting a bit of self-flagellation. We were saying beforehand that London audience loves self-flagellation on the... Uh, or not even self-flagellation, being flagellated about the... Uh, <laughs> I, I mentioned this with Lawrence in mind, of course, um, the, um, on, on the subject of empire. That wasn't quite what I was expecting, but thank you very much. And on that note, I'm going to urge you, um, first of all, to go out and buy copies of these books which are outside and um, buy one for yourself and one for each of your friends. And um, I think they've got plenty in stock. Um, But before you do that, please join me in thanking both our authors for their contributions. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.